morning we continue our series of 11 messages titled Adventures with Abraham from the book of Genesis. And uh, today is sermon number seven out of the 11. I'm going to be preaching on what is your Sodom? What is your Sodom? If you'd like to turn with me, turn to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis chapter 18. Beginning at verse 16, Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. Now, this is one of those sermons that you're probably not going to be able to outline. Okay. It's probably one of those sermons that, uh, you would be frustrated trying to take notes on it. So I just want you to know, we, I think we're having a CD made of this, uh, sermon that you can get for a couple bucks if you want it. Or I'm more than willing to uh, run off copies of my manuscript, which I do from time to time, and you can get this information. I just want you to really just kind of sit there this morning and just kind of listen and kind of hear the Holy Spirit's voice this morning. Uh, but before I go any farther, I, I want to pray. Father God, this is a hard sermon to preach. This sermon is so far away from being politically correct that it's kind of unnerving. And Lord, I know in this sanctuary this morning, there are people that are at different points of their spiritual journey. Some are farther ahead and some are farther back. Some possibly haven't even started a spiritual journey, a relationship with you. And I, I pray, Father, before this day is over, that they take that first step to begin their spiritual journey. Lord, you have given us your word as a lamp unto our feet, as a, as a light for our path, and a lamp unto our feet. And you, you want us, Father, to find our guidance, our, our map in your word. And I pray this morning, Father, for not just that we might do church as usual today, that this will be more than just Sunday go to meeting church, Father. I'm praying for your Holy Spirit to minister to each one of us where we are on that spiritual journey. I'm expecting your Holy Spirit to do unusual things today as your word goes forward and we have the promise it will not return void. It's going to accomplish what you desire for it to accomplish. And I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. We're going to look at uh, Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. And it says, When the men got up to leave, they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham walked along with them to see them on their way. Then the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? And, and I think that's a, that's a very interesting question. Because we know from Scripture that Abraham was called God's friend. And God was just about ready to act. And he said, 
I can't do this without telling my friend what I'm going to be doing. Can't do it. Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Listen to this compliment of God upon Abraham's life. For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous. And I want you to go back to chapter 13, verse 13 real quick. Genesis chapter 13, verse 13, as we're talking about this, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 13, 13 says, Now the men of Sodom were wicked and were sinning greatly against the Lord. Verse 22, The men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. In chapter 18, they are called men. The men uh, turned away and went towards Sodom. But if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, chapter 19, verse 1, we have the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. These were angels. If you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how three men came to Abraham. One was the Lord, and then there were two angels. And now these two angels have slipped away. They're heading towards Sodom. But Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And what I want to preach on this morning, I'm calling it, What is Your Sodom? But I want to really deal with this subject of intercessory prayer. What that means. What that looks like. What does it mean to be an intercessor? I want to to touch on that uh, a little bit more this morning. Abraham remains standing before the Lord. I want you to see a beautiful picture of a man who was an intercessor. He was standing before the Lord. He was in the presence of the Lord. And then verse 23 says, Then Abraham approached him. He approached the Lord. The King James Version says, and I love this, Abraham drew near. He's in the presence of the Lord, but now he's drawing near to the Lord. And then in verse 27, it says, Then Abraham spoke up again, Now that I have been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes. He's in the presence of the Lord. He's drawing near to the Lord in humility. That's a perfect picture of what an intercessor is supposed to look like and what an intercessor does. They're in the presence of the Lord, drawing near to the Lord in humility. In humility. Intercession. The definition of it is is to, to intercede and to plead the case of another person. That's what it means. Intercession is pleading the case of another person. When Abraham prays for Sodom, it is the first intercessory prayer in our Bible. There will be many more, but this is the first one. 
I'm not going to read all of the rest of the passage, but let me say this. Abraham intercedes on behalf of Sodom six times in this passage. He asks the Lord, he says, Lord, if, if there are 50 people, surely you won't destroy the city if you find 50 righteous people. And the Lord says, no, if I find 50 righteous people, I won't destroy the city. Abraham comes down five more. How about 45? And the Lord says, if I find 45 righteous people, I, I won't destroy the city. Well, how about 40? And when he hits 40, he gets rather bold. Because from 40, he drops at 10. And he goes from 40 to 30. What if there's 30 righteous people? Would you destroy the city of Sodom if, if there's 30 righteous people? And the Lord says, no, if there's 30, I won't. Abraham says, how about 20? How about 20? He drops another 10. No. If there's 20, I won't destroy the city. If there's 20 righteous people. And finally, Abraham says, how about 10? How about 10 people? If there are 10 righteous people in the city of Sodom, you won't destroy the city, will you? And the Lord says, I won't destroy Sodom if there's 10 righteous people. 10. Now this has always been kind of an issue to me, and I, I've kind of wondered what's going on here, but I was reading this past week, and there was an interesting thing that I learned. Archaeologists have estimated that the city of Sodom could have had 250,000 residents. And they believe it was located uh, around the Dead Sea. But I want you to think about that. There could have been 250,000 people in that city. And Abraham says, if there's 10 righteous, you won't destroy the city. And the Lord said, no, I won't. Intercessory prayer. At General Conference, I bought a book that uh, Dr. Wes Gehrig has just released. The book is titled Lessons from Life for Life. And it's Life Applications from the Old Testament. And in that book, he, he has a number of the chapters and he had a number of lessons on intercession. You know how Dr. West liked his lessons, you know. And there was one that I thought was really, really good. There, there were a lot of good ones, but this was my favorite. He says, intercessory prayer can be prayed for people who have not requested it, have not consented to it, and do not even know we're doing it. I like that. Intercessory prayer. That's what it can look like. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, If sinners will not hear you speak, they cannot prevent your praying. The people in Sodom did not even know that Abraham was interceding for them to try to spare their city. They didn't even know. This past week I was reading a book by uh, Andrew Murray. Andrew Murray died in 1917. He was a South African. He was a, an author that wrote a lot of books and uh, materials on the devotional life. He was a prayer warrior and a half. 
He was a man who said, may not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, love, and joy of God's presence. I really like that. But he has in his book, The Ministry of Intercessory Prayer, he has a a chapter where he talks about God seeks intercessors. You know, we... Jesus told the woman at the well that God is is seeking those who will worship Him in spirit and in truth. It would be interesting someday to preach a message on who is God seeking. I thought about preaching that message. It would be an interesting message. What is God looking for? And He says God seeks intercessors. Isaiah 59, 16 That passage is in the midst of Jerusalem and a time of just national wickedness among God's people. And this is what the Lord says. And he saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no intercessor. He's looking at the whole nation of of Israel, specifically the city of Jerusalem, and all this wickedness. And he says... I'm looking for an intercessor. I'm looking for someone. I can't find him. Ezekiel said he was looking for a man who would stand in the gap. And he said, I couldn't find anybody. He is seeking intercessors. Samuel the prophet in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, has some really striking words. He says, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. We talk about the prayer life of people, but do we ever talk about the the sin of prayerlessness, the sin of not interceding for other people? And do we see that as a sin? Samuel says, Be it far from me that I I fail in in my relationship to the Lord by not praying for you, by not being an intercessor. We have the story of Job. And after his bankruptcy, his bereavement, and his boils, we have that whole story. And in that last chapter, Job chapter 42 at verse 10, it says something very interesting there. In that last chapter, his three friends, his three comforters, we call them Job's comforters. And what they had been saying, God says, what you have been saying about me, it's not right. You have not been presenting me true to my character. What you've been saying about me is not right. And he said this. He says, you go to Job and ask Job to pray for you so that I do not deal with you according to your foolishness. You better go ask Job to pray for you. And these three comforters, they went to Job and Job chapter 42, 10 says, after Job had prayed for his friends, listen to this. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. It was after his intercession for his friends that God would not deal with those friends of his according to their foolishness. And after he prayed for them, God made him prosperous once again. 
Let me tell you something, folks. There's something that comes from intercession. I heard this story at General Conference. And it really spoke to my heart. This is a true story. It happened at General Conference just uh, a week ago. One of our pastors was, was staying in the Hilton Hotel downtown. And the Lord just laid it on his heart to write a thank you to the cleaning lady at the hotel. And so he writes this card and he, he's just telling her, I don't know who you are, but I just want you to know you've done a great job cleaning my room. Thank you. And he went on to say some other things and he came back that night after being at the conference and she had written him a card and put it on the bed. Thank you for thanking me. He felt that this was not the end of this story. This wasn't the way it was supposed to end. So the next morning he went to the desk and he said, I've just got to meet the lady who has been cleaning my room. And she had signed her name and he told the person at the desk what her name was. And the person said, yes, she's up on such and such a floor cleaning right now. So the pastor went up on that floor and he called her by name and he said, I'm the one that left you that thank you note and I just had to meet you in person. And I just have to thank you. And he said, I also sense that the Spirit is telling me I need to pray for you. And he said, is there something going on in your life that you would like me to pray for? And at that point, she broke down and the tears started streaming down her cheeks. And she said, just last week, my son was arrested for a crime and he's in jail today and it's breaking my heart. Would you pray for me? This pastor, he, he prayed for her and when he was done, this cleaning lady, this woman said to him, I haven't been to church in many years, but I'm going to go to church on Sunday. The power of intercessory prayer as we plead the case for another person. You know, I've asked people before when I'm out if I can pray for them. I've never had anyone turn me down. I never have. I've heard of people who have been turned down when they ask that question. May I pray for you? I've never been turned down. I believe the telephone is a great way to, to, to use the telephone for intercessory prayer. You know, I remember early in my ministry, people would call and they would ask me to pray for them. They'd tell me about a specific need and I'd say, I'll, I'll write that down and I'll make sure that I pray for you. You know, as I get a little older... I found out I need to deal with that right there and then. When they have that need, pray over the telephone for them right there and then. 
you know. Intercessory of prayer, pleading the case of another person to the Lord. As few as ten people, ten righteous people, would have saved a whole city from destruction. Ten people. Warren Wiersbe says, if Lot had won only his own family to faith in the Lord, judgment would have been averted. But if you remember, he had his son-in-laws and he told them, hurry up, get out of Sodom. The Lord is going to destroy Sodom. And they looked at him as one who was joking. Genesis chapter 19, verse 14. His warning fell upon deaf ears. Now, why did God allow Abraham to intercede for Sodom when the Lord knew he was going to destroy Sodom anyways? I think there's a couple reasons. God allowed Abraham to intercede in order to reveal his mercy. In chapter 19, it talks about Lot. It talks about Lot's wife and his two daughters. Only four people spared from the city of Sodom. And as they left, we remember Lot's wife turned and looked back. She had been commanded, don't look back as you leave the city. And she turned into a pillar of salt. But it says in Genesis chapter 19, God was merciful to them. That's a great thought. In the midst of all of this destruction, he wanted Abraham to know, I am a merciful God. And you're right, I am not going to destroy the righteous with those who are wicked. God takes no pleasure in destroying the wicked. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9 tells us that He is patient with us. He does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. He's a patient God. He didn't get any jollies by destroying Sodom and Gomorrah, folks. It broke his heart. Broke his heart. Abraham's prayer shows us the power righteous people can have. I am calling... Harvester Avenue Missionary Church. To those of you who want to do this, and I'm hoping many of you do, to spend 10 minutes a day, more if possible, but at least 10 minutes a day, in personal intercessory prayer for our nation. And I call you to do it in the same manner Abraham did. In the presence of the Lord, Drawing near to the Lord in humility before Him. You see, Abraham's intercession teaches us something about God, but Abraham's intercession teaches us something about prayer. Why did God destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? Why did He do it? How many of you like watching the History Channel? We got any History Channel people here? A while back, the History Channel was running a series called Histories Mysteries. And one of the segments of that series 
was on Sodom and Gomorrah. And I heard it was coming on and I watched it. And I thought, I want to see how the History Channel deals with the city of Sodom. I'm, I'm just interested if, if it will be politically correct or if they'll really teach it the way the Bible gives us that story. And what I heard I was very disappointed with. Not, I wouldn't say totally surprised or shocked. However, the, the History Channel does a lot of things right. I don't want to knock the History Channel. But they missed this one by a mile. Do you want to know how they explained the sin of Sodom? They said that the reason that God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah had nothing to do with his judgment on homosexuality. It had everything to do in the fact that the people in Sodom were not hospitable to the two angels that visited. And that's why he destroyed the city. Because of the way they treated those two angels in chapter 19. Now, I'll admit, uh, that wasn't very good treatment of the angels in Genesis chapter 19. But if you want to know why God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, those twin cities. Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, give us a summary of exactly why God destroyed Sodom. And some of you are going to be surprised to hear this. Because we've been taught in the church for years that the reason God destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah was because of their moral perversion. And let me tell you this, that's part of it. That's part of it. But as Ezekiel explains the sins of Sodom, I want you to hear this, America. He says in Ezekiel 16, 49 and 50, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride. Pride. The NIV uses the word arrogance. Fullness of bread. That's King James. The NIV says overfed. Overfed. I want you to hear this next one. An abundance of idleness. And that word in the Hebrew, I'm told, means people were unconcerned. They were apathetic. And they were lazy. The work ethic of Sodom was gone. There was an abundance of idleness. People didn't want to work. And today, we have that same attitude prevalent in our nation. Why should I work? I'll let the government take care of me. Do you realize in the last five years... The number of people on food stamps in this nation has doubled. Now, a lot of people will say it's because of the economy, unemployment, and all that. But I'm here to tell you, the problem goes far deeper than that. It goes far deeper than that. And I want you to know, when they take taxes out of my check when I get paid, 
I count it a privilege to help those who cannot help themselves. You can take as much money out of my check as you want to help somebody that seriously needs it. But we are getting so many people in this nation anymore that don't fit that bill. They're capable of working, but they have decided not to work. And we are becoming a nation where there's an abundance of idleness. It was eight, it was about 10 years ago. Charles Colson wrote a book, Why America Doesn't Work Anymore. This is a warning to America that we would wake up and we would see that what happened to Sodom is the same slippery slope that the United States of America is on. And we would learn from them and not make the same mistakes. It goes on to say, Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy as they were haughty. They were proud, arrogant, and committed abomination. There you've got the sexual perversion right there. They committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw good. As a warning to the ungodly, Jude 7 says, In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. Listen to this line. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The reason that this 18th and 19th chapter of Genesis is in there is for an example for us so that we won't follow the same path that they went down as a nation. Ruth Graham, Billy Graham's wife, died in 2007. Prior to her death, she made a statement that's been quoted and quoted and quoted by many, many people. If God doesn't punish America, he'll have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. She died in 2007. Before what happened on June 26th of 2013 when the Supreme Court struck down the Defense of Marriage Act saying that it was unconstitutional and discriminatory. And with that one act, which by the way, Bill Clinton was the one who first signed the Defense of Marriage Act. I want you to know that because he doesn't typically get credit for that back in 1996. And in that act, he said that marriage was just for heterosexuals. In that act, he said that a same-sex marriage that was conducted in one state did not have to be recognized in another state. Bill Clinton signed that. And the Supreme Court of our land, who thinks they're the Supreme Court of the world and the universe, I want you to understand, they will be judged for changing and mocking and destroying the laws of the Lord. If you want to know what God says about sexual perversion, if you want to know what God says about pride, if you want to know what God says about 
people being overfed and underworked. If you want to say what God says about abundance of idleness, my friends, it's here. It's right here. And on that June 26th, it was a Wednesday. I remember it well. We had prayer meeting that night and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed over that decision reached by the Supreme Court. And as soon as that Defense of Marriage Act was struck down, the bells at the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. rang for an hour. A church, why did they ring? Because the National Cathedral in Washington, D.C. was celebrating that decision that was reached by the Supreme Court. A church. But I'm here to tell you this morning, any nation, state, or city that permits or encourages homosexuality comes under God's judgment. In America, you cannot promote and you cannot permit homosexuality without experiencing the consequences of God. You can't do it. But I got some good news this morning. I'm a preacher of good news. Some would say, what are you, homophobic? No. I see homosexuality the way the Word of God sees homosexuality. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexual immoral... And it goes on, it gives a whole list and it gets down to nor homosexual offenders will inherit the kingdom of God. Homosexual offenders. It's no plainer than that. You can't get any plainer than that. Homosexual offenders will not inherit the kingdom of God. They won't make it to heaven, folks. But here's the good news. I'm glad that the Apostle Paul didn't end it there with that. He says... And this is what some of you were, past tense. And this is what some of you were, but you are washed, you are sanctified, you are justified in the name of our Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. The message of the Word of God is very plain and very simple. There is hope for the homosexual. But there is no hope if they do not change, if they do not become washed, sanctified, justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God, there is no hope. Jesus used the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah as a warning for people in the end times. And Jesus even said specifically in Luke chapter 17, verse 32, remember Lot's wife. Let her serve as an illustration of worldliness. Remember Lot's wife. Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 to 24, Jesus said that Capernaum, Capernaum would be judged more severely than Sodom. Think about that. 
Capernaum was the the town where Jesus set up his headquarters for his earthly ministry of three, three and a half years. And Matthew says, actually Jesus in the book of Matthew says, if the miracles that were performed in Capernaum had been performed in Sodom, they would have remained until this day. Think about that. You see, Capernaum was a place of privilege because Jesus was there. Jesus' ministry was there. His teaching was there. His miracles were there. And they rejected the light. And what Matthew is saying in his book there is their sin was greater because they had more light. The greater the light, the greater the judgment when that light is rejected. And that's the position I see America in today. The greater the light, the greater the judgment when that light is rejected. One of the first books I ever bought was a book that was copyrighted in 1971. I bought it when I was in college. It was, a, it was by uh, a man by the name of Leonard Ravenhill who died in uh, 1994. Leonard Ravenhill was a prophet for the ages, folks. You read anything by Leonard Ravenhill. He writes on revival. Uh, he was a good friend of A.W. Tozier. He was an Englishman. And the book that I bought, it's one of the first I ever bought for my library, had this title, Sodom Had No Bible. And he, in that book, went and talked about all the advantages we have as a nation that Sodom never had. Listen to these. Sodom had no churches. Sodom had no Bible. Sodom had no Bible schools. Sodom had no prayer meetings. Sodom had no gospel broadcasts. And he goes on and on and on in there about the fact that the United States, like Capernaum, we are a place of privilege. We are a place where God truly has shined His light on us. And the greater the light that has been rejected, the greater the judgment that will come. So what is your Sodom this morning? What is that person or that that group of people that you, you need to be interceding for? What is your Sodom? Is it your school? Is it your neighborhood? Is it your workplace? Is it your family? What is your Sodom? What is your Sodom? I encourage you to be an intercessor. And maybe your story will end differently from this story. And maybe God will use you to save a city. To save a family. To save a colleague at work. As we intercede and we plead the case for another. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward at this time.
We're going to ask you to stand. Maybe the Lord's been speaking to you this morning about becoming more intentional, becoming more active as an intercessor. We need intercessors for America. I'd like each one of you to bow your head and close your eyes. And I would like to see by your upraised hand this morning, how many of you would say, Pastor Dave, I'm going to commit with you to spend at least 10 minutes a day in intercessory prayer for America. How many would you put those hands up? More if you can. It'd be great if you spend more, but just 10 minutes. All right. Pastor Bob, 